Welcome to PodClast with Lara Axtell, a seasoned educator of 26 years. In each episode of PodClast, Lara explores a current educational topic from a variety of perspectives to identify practical solutions to help improve the future of education. PodClast is brought to you by Reading Horizons. Visit readinghorizons.com to learn more. And now, PodClast with your host, Lara Axtell. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Laura Axtell, your host. Today's episode is part one of a two-part series on adolescent literacy. This topic is one we often don't hear enough about. How do we engage adolescents, especially boys, in reading and writing? How important is motivation? And what can teachers do to support it? Do teachers have an understanding of the types of reading materials that might increase the literacy lives of adolescents? Our guest on this episode is Dr. Jeffrey Wilhelm, Professor of English Education at Boise State University. Dr. Wilhelm and Dr. Michael W. Smith from Temple University have conducted research and co-authored several books on this subject. I think you will find their information fascinating and their recommendations valuable. Part two will feature Dr. Smith and an educator who works with high school students in an alternative school setting. Dr. Wilhelm, thank you so much for joining us today on PodClast. It's a great pleasure to be here. So your books have made a huge impact on me as an educator um, because for the first time I was reading about the differences with adolescent literacy and especially as that relates to boys. So could you talk a bit about how adolescent literacy is different from reading and writing in the earlier grades? Well, there's there's a lot of ways that it's different. One that pertains to reading is early on in kindergarten, first, second grade, what you're reading is narrative, which Barbara Hardy, the brain researcher, describes as the primary mode of mind. And it has visual supports and pictures, and it invites collaboration. You know, you're read aloud to. And then suddenly, you know, you start getting into fourth, fifth grade, and everything's more complex. Genre becomes complex. Genre becomes mixed. You start reading textbooks, which is the densest form of nonfiction known to humankind. And things just get harder. You know, I found that in teaching graduate students who are teachers who are very good readers and very avid, that I need to teach them how to read abstracts and literature reviews. And and it's not because they don't know how to read. It's because they've never seen a methodology section before and they don't know the conventions. So reading gets much more complex in conventional terms as you go through school. And you're also being asked to read to do work. In early grades, reading is often taught as reading, but later on, reading and writing are used to get things done, to understand, to have a functional value. And partly as a result, reading doesn't really get taught much after second grade. Uh, Dick Allington has written about this quite often, and I actually heard him give a speech where he said, you know, we don't teach reading at all after second grade. And and reading is something that's so complex and increases in complexity as you go through your life that you need to be taught it in every subject all through school. And these two women in front of me started to whisper, and it turned out they were second grade teachers. And so they they raised their hands, and, and the one woman said, we don't teach reading. We expect the first grade teachers to have done that. And, and Allington, you know, he's quite a a character, and he just exploded, you know, and said, it's worse than I thought. And and he began to talk about how reading is often equated with decoding, but that when you start thinking about comprehension and the uses of literacy, 
it becomes something much, much more complex that requires teaching throughout your life. And, you know, something that uh, you see quite often and you hear about quite often is, you know, the fourth or fifth grade reading slump. And one of the things that we found in our research is that it's really not a slump. It's that the text got harder and nobody was helping the kids to read or write those kind of texts. So I think that that's a major difference that you've seen. And the term literacy obviously means a lot of things to a lot of people. Let's go back to that decoding piece that you mentioned. Um, so teachers are expecting that those early grades are kind of handling, um, do, doing the heavy lifting on helping students understand how words work. And then later on, is it the really the goal is to shift to things that will derive comprehension? Is that the goal? Well, I think it uh, goes beyond that. It, it certainly involves comprehension, but I think it involves functionality. You know, we read as we get older to do work, to, to, to understand, to apply what we've learned to solve problems. And so that just makes the whole literacy enterprise much more complicated. So you have focused much of your research on adolescent boys and your book with Dr. Michael W. Smith, Reading Don't Fix No Chevys, is really eye-opening in so many ways. Uh, could you discuss what you found about how boys read and engage with different kinds of text and what qualities of text appeal to boys? I'm very happy to do that, but at first I want to give a disclaimer that, you know, one of the things we found in our study, I mean, it was a, a study that was qualitative and there were 52 boys involved and it took three years. And one of the things we found is that the boys were way more different than they were alike. And so it made us very hesitant to paint with too broad a brush, but when you you look at the research in general, and when we looked across the boys in, in our study, you know, there are certainly things that are very clear general trends. You know, that boys take longer to learn to read than girls do. Boys read less than girls read. Girls tend to comprehend narrative text and most expository texts significantly better than boys do. Boys generally have lower estimations in their reading abilities, and that is a problem over time. They increasingly consider themselves to be non-readers or poor readers as they go through school. Boys and girls obviously express interest in reading different things. Uh, boys are more inclined to read informational text, read magazine articles, newspaper articles. They, they uh, are more attracted to graphic novels and that kind of thing. Visual text, even if they're not graphic novels, that they, they like to be able to visualize what they read. They like books that are edgy and subversive that call into question the status quo. They like books that we call exportable, that you could immediately talk to your friends about it, uh, that there would be something interesting to say or to apply. Boys tend to enjoy plot and action-driven text. The great theorist Jerome Bruner calls that landscape of action. And we found that most of the books that were being read in school were landscape of consciousness. It was more about the psychology and feelings of the characters, uh, which did not appeal in general to the boys in our study. Uh, boys privilege being and appearing competent above anything else. And so they liked texts that displayed their competence, either because it connected to uh, something they knew about or were interested in and could display competence about, or because it displayed their reading competence. And for that reason, they tended to like series books because 
if, for instance, you're reading Harry Potter and you've already read the first three books in the series and you know the major characters and the setting and the problems, you're going to be way more competent reading that book. And so that very much appealed to them. Uh, interestingly, they like books. I think this goes along with the edginess that offered multiple perspectives. They really enjoyed books that offered a non-status quo perspective, which ties in to a finding that they like texts that are unique and novel, that are surprising in some way, that provide a rupture to their understanding or a rupture to the way you usually read. They were hugely attracted to books that involved laughter and humor. Uh, you know, some of the middle school kids in our study were still reading Captain Underpants and things like that. They love far side cartoons, Calvin and Hobbes, you know, anything that made them laugh. That also connects to the exportability. You know, they'd say to their friend, oh, listen to this. So, you know, in general, they like text with powerful, exportable, usable ideas that made nonfiction more attractive than fiction. Uh, they liked quick reads that gave them a visible sign of accomplishment uh, and that lent themselves to immediate use and application. So, I mean, those are just a few of the things that we found. And interestingly, those don't tend to be the kinds of texts that are privileged or taught or even encouraged in, in schools. So what would you say to educators and parents who are worried that their adolescents and generally boys want to read things like comic books and graphic novels and the Wimpy Kids series and things like that? Does that not count as reading? Well, one of the things we found in our study was that though a lot of the kids were in the study because their teachers identified them as being illiterate or illiterate or highly at risk, that in fact, that wasn't true. They all had these areas of competence and passion. And all of them related in some way to their literate practices. So I guess one piece of advice is stop defining literacy so narrowly and stop defining worthy text so narrowly. In fact, when you look at studies of expert adult readers, they read all kinds of stuff, some of which you know, might be considered canonical and worthy as literature, but they read all kinds of other stuff too, some of which you might consider to be trash. And I don't think we should deny uh, kids the opportunity to do what expert readers do, which is to have a wide reading life where they read all kinds of things that provide all kinds of different pleasures. And another thing that we found in a different study called Reading Unbound, which was about pleasure reading, is that kids tend to read what they need. They're, they're attracted to the kinds of texts that are helping them with their current life issues and that are readable and usable for them. So, for instance, in that study, a lot of the, the kids who are in middle school are reading vampire novels. And it was very much tied to the changes they were trying to navigate physically and emotionally. And it, it never occurred to me before that being an adolescent is kind of like being a vampire. You know, you're, you're in the control of these things that you don't really understand. And, and, and so, you know, it, it gave me a new respect for the choices kids make. You know, one thing Tom Newkirk points out is that a lot of times teachers say they're providing kids choice. And, and we know from a variety of research how important choice is to engagement, but also to your identity formation. And Newkirk points out that a lot of times those choices are constrained. So he cites an elementary school teacher who says, you can write about whatever you want and read about whatever you want, but no violence. And he says, well, now boys no longer have a choice because boys like reading and writing about violence. And so don't say you're giving them a choice if you're limiting the choices 
that a lot of them would make. So I, I definitely think voice is something that I'd argue we need to have more trust in the kids. And we need to ask them, you know, why did you, why do you enjoy that book? What are you getting out of that? How's, how is that useful to you? And you'll be surprised by the answers you get. Um, so could you relate that a little bit to the title, reading Don't Fix No Chevys? What, what did you find that, that kind of was summarized by that title? Well, the title comes from a Bill Moyers interview with the poet Jimmy Santiago Baca, where Baca is talking about how he's in prison and he realizes everybody in prison is illiterate. And in fact, if you know the data, that's the greatest correlation for being incarcerated is that you're illiterate. So illiteracy is really a social justice issue in so many ways because without it, you can't actualize your full potential. And that's really why we undertook this study, because, you know, you look at data from every country where it's available, boys are underachieved girls in almost every areas of literacy to a statistically significant degree. And if you see a group of kids who are struggling, I think we have this moral imperative to help them, which means you have to understand why they're struggling. But anyway, back to Jimmy Santiago Baca, he tries to learn how to read. And he, and he starts with the romantic poets like Wordsworth. And he immediately is getting harassed by all the other prisoners who say, you're trying to be white. You're trying to be the man. Reading don't fix no Chevys. Reading don't do no tricks. And one of the things Baca says is that what they didn't understand is reading, in fact, does fix Chevys. Reading does work in the world. And this is what the boys in our study wanted. They wanted to read things and learn things that did work, that did work for them and stake in their identity, but also as a functional application to the world, as a way to be competent and exert power in the world. So one of our arguments in the book is that boys do not reject literacy. Boys reject literacy as literacy, as, as something that you just do for its own sake. But they embrace literacy when it is taught and supported as part of a process of developing personal power, of developing understanding, or doing work in the world. So we meant the title to be ironic in that, in fact, reading has to fix Chevys, and we have to teach it in that way. We'll be right back. Podcast is sponsored by Reading Horizons, the creator of a data-driven literacy program for beginning readers, struggling readers, and English language learners of all ages. With data-informing software and teacher-led instruction, students receive targeted intervention that leads to rapid reading improvement. Visit readinghorizons.com demo to see how Reading Horizons can transform your reading instruction. So getting back to the issue with choice, is it then really something that educators need to become better versed about in terms of finding the kinds of books that would appeal to that that you know, offering so many options for kids to read that boys could find and, and adolescents in general could find information and reading material that is interesting to them. Yeah, I think, you know, teachers obviously have a very challenging and complicated job. And I think part of our job is to do things together as a class so that we're doing things together that require socialness, that reward socialness, that you know, it goes back to that Vygotskyan idea that we're smarter together than we are alone. But we also need to balance that kind of work with allowing kids to have independent reading lives and, and encouraging that. 
You know, in my own classroom, I will do inquiries because they're very focused on uh, functional value. And of course, I'm trying to teach the kids through the text we read to be better readers and writers, to develop more capacity and conscious competence as readers and writers. But I also have a free reading program where I encourage them to read books and texts alone or with others that apply to the inquiry. And then often that they just do for the pure joy of it. Uh, I encourage kids to read things at their instructional level that is going to push them where they have to practice new strategies. But I also like for them to read things that are just fun that they can read. So I think it has to do with, with balance. You know, certainly sometimes we want to be pushing kids forward and assisting them through their zones of proximal development. But other times we want them just to be immersing themselves in the pleasures of a book. So what's your opinion about a ninth grade or 10th grade English class that um, requires kids to read things like Shakespeare and classics and pretty much has the book list that's been used for the last 10 or 15 years. Is that a good thing? Well, I, I think it depends. You know, I work in a school where we read Romeo and Juliet in ninth grade, and it depends how it's taught. The way we do it is we frame it as a problem to be solved. So we ask what makes and breaks relationships. And as soon as you ask that question, have you ever met a ninth grader for whom that is not the central problem issue of their existence? (laughs) You know, so we immediately have this personal connection and we do a lot of preparatory work. You know, we read love fables, we read love poetry, we look at love songs, we read articles from evolutionary biology, and we build conceptual knowledge about this this issue, uh, which is a very human issue across time about how do we create strong, lasting, healthy relationships and avoid the pitfalls. And every kid cares about that. And when you've asked that question, you've completely changed Romeo and Juliet from a text that's authoritative, that the teacher knows more about than you, to a turn in a conversation about this issue we all care about, that we can agree with, disagree with, revise, push back on, etc. And that makes all the difference to boys. So it's not that they reject Romeo and Juliet, they reject it as an authoritative artifact. We found in our follow-up study, Going with the Flow, that when teachers framed literature in terms of an essential question or of an inquiry, that the boys would embrace it with a kind of joy because it started meeting these conditions that they looked for, that the reading was purposeful, that it had immediate use and application, that it fostered their growing competence and control that it was something they were doing socially with other people that was significant, where they could immerse themselves in the immediate, where they saw a personal connection. So I wouldn't reject traditional forms of curriculum or canonical text. I would just say, how are you teaching it? And are you creating these conditions of flow? Are you meeting these conditions of motivation that the boys look for in their reading and, in fact, in all their learning? Well, that kind of leads to the next point, which is I was really fascinated with your findings regarding how reading has been kind of feminized. What did you mean by that? And what are the implications for educators? Well, this really isn't our finding. Uh, this is something that's been widely written about that we we use in the book uh, by citing other researchers. And we primarily uh, cite this Australian researcher named Wayne Martino and a British researcher uh, named Elaine Millard. And, you know, what they found 
was that when you look at popular cultural images of reading, in fact, there's a researcher named Sherland who's done a, a very interesting series of studies on this, and she's found that despite the fact that libraries solicit professional athletes to be part of reading promotions, you know, and you see Shaquille O'Neal in the library saying, read, uh, despite that, well over 80% of any image in popular culture, in, in a magazine, uh, in movies, etc., of people reading are of females. And usually they're reading alone or with other females. Now, Vivian Paley, in her seminal work on kindergarten kids, you know, makes the point that boys are very, very keen to position themselves as not female. And they will go to great lengths to reject anything that they see as being feminized. So this is something that's been widely researched. And, and I've already alluded to the fact that uh, most of the books we read in school are kind of on this landscape of consciousness versus landscape of action. We mostly teach literature that's about relationships and feelings. Uh, we don't focus much on functional applications. So in those ways, boys can see reading as feminized or perhaps just as not meeting their needs or not meeting their immediate interest. We had a lot of counterexamples to this kind of feminization. You know, teachers who would teach in such a way that, that boys would just love reading Romeo and Juliet or even Jane Eyre or Wuthering Heights. But it had to do with how they were framing the text as a problem to be solved that connected to their lives. And we found that boys would engage with pretty much any piece of literature if it, if the framing and instruction captured what Csikszentmihalyi calls the conditions of flow experience. So based on your research and experience with students and research that has been done previously, and much of which you outlined in your follow-up book that you mentioned, Going with the Flow, uh, what recommendations could you offer for improving how schools engage boys and increase their literacy lives both in and out of school? The, the central finding, really, of the research was that boys look for very specific conditions if they're going to engage in reading or in learning or any kind of problem solving. And the conditions we found matched Csikszentmihalyi's work on flow. And what Csikszentmihalyi has found in studying men and women, boys and girls, for nearly 50 years now is that uh, we're all motivated by these same conditions that uh, we seek in a situation. And those conditions are a clear purpose, goals, and immediate feedback. That was the first thing the boys looked for. What's the purpose? How's this going to help me? How am I going to use it? What's the payoff? Another condition is I have a challenge that requires an appropriate level of skill, and I get the assistance I need to meet this challenge as needed to be successful. You know, that's basically Vygotsky. Kids want to be more competent. They want to be taught in their zone of proximal development, and they want to get the help they need to be successful. The third is a sense of control and developing competence. I think that's the linchpin of motivation, certainly for the boys in our study. Anything that made them feel smarter, anything that made them feel more powerful, anything that gave them a visible sign of accomplishment was highly motivating. The fourth is that you have a focus on the immediate experience. The boys wanted a connection to current relevance. Uh, they wanted to make and do things with what they were learning. They wanted an immediate function for it. Uh, they wanted fun and humor, and the social was huge. One boy said, it's always better with friends, always. And so they really privileged collaborative learning and peer assistance and sharing with friends and negotiating and 
sharing what was being learned. Now, when you look at that, there's only one kind of teaching model and curriculum that meets those demands and meets necessarily those conditions of flow experience, and that's inquiry as cognitive apprenticeship, so guided inquiry. When you inquire, you've got an essential question, and that frames what you're doing as a problem to be solved. And you're going to work towards some kind of culminating project, uh, which means you've got a functional value. When you're doing inquiry, it requires these multiple perspectives the boys like. You look at every angle of the issue and everybody's viewpoint, everybody's past experience is immediately valuable and applicable. So the big answer to the question you're asking to me is teach through guided inquiry as cognitive apprenticeship. And that helps you frame reading in terms of inquiry on two levels. It means you can inquire into being more expert as a reader and writer, which they want. They want to be more competent in consciously competent ways and into how you're learning about these conceptual topics or problems that have an immediate functional value in the world. I also think it's really important to foreground pleasure. Uh, this was a separate study, uh, the Reading and Bound study, but we found that there were five kinds of pleasure that any engaged reader, adolescent reader through adulthood, was always enjoying when they were deeply engaged with the book. And the first was immersive, so it was kind of play pleasure, intellectual, figuring things out, work application pleasure, so when you get to have a functional value, inner work pleasure where you feel like you're becoming more the person you want to be, and social pleasure. Inquiry rewards all of those. Another great teaching technique, which is rarely used in American schools, is drama and education techniques, action strategies techniques, which help you engage in that immersive play pleasure and help you figure things out and are very social. So that's another thing I'd recommend is doing a lot of drama work. I think it's important to make popular cultural connections to what you're reading in school and music connections. The boys in our schools, uh, in our study, we're very hip to popular culture and to music. I think it's very important to have a truly free, free reading program uh, that you make social with kids sharing what they've read and with book talks and family friends nights. Uh, I think it's important to have availability, that you have lots of graphic novels and short texts and cartoons and popular cultural texts and magazines and YA novels and, and books of all kinds uh, in your classroom to make a case hey, here, we read everything. And you get to choose what you want to read. And you should read what is going to be valuable and important and significant to you. I teach a lot of refugee kids and English language learners now, as well as just struggling readers. And it's really important for me to make it clear that here, we read everything. And they're going to see me reading children's books and pictures books and graphic novels because I want to make the case. Good readers read whatever is of interest to them. Um, I think... Something we also neglect in school is front-loading or priming and orienting, we, where we prepare kids for success. So when you do an inquiry unit or you're reading a complex text, I think it's very important to prime that reading, to show the kids out connects to things they already know and care about, and that you orient them toward the purpose and payoffs of the reading. And the research going back to schema theory in the 70s, the cognitive science today shows that that can make all the difference in kids' engagement and then success at the task. And I think so often we remediate kids instead of preparing them for success. So those are just a, a few of the things. I think leveraging the social power of the classroom, our, our boys just privilege the social so much. You know, so do more collaborative learning, more book sharing, 
more social action service learning projects as a result of your inquiries, that kind of thing. Those are just a few of the ideas that come to my mind when I think of our research and how to apply it. And those are certainly wonderful recommendations. Um, you mentioned, you know, the boys in the original study reading Don't Fix No Chevys were identified as kind of illiterate, illiterate. And you mentioned just now about, you know, the focus has been on kind of remediation. Um, what happens when boys or any student gets into high school, they're not really getting instruction to read anymore, but they're reading significantly below grade level. Any um, recommendations for educators when they face that, which is common? Well, one thing that was really interesting in our study is that the kids had well over 30 ways that we coded for tricking a teacher that they were trying to read something when they weren't. And, and it was crazy. I mean, it went from carry the book around and move the bookmark, you know, uh, go into class and say, I didn't understand X, you know, just find out enough from foolyourteachers.com or SparkNotes to ask a question. They also found that that would usually preclude a quiz, you know, and it just went on and on. They had all these strategies, to, like not read. And so I think that's what happens, obviously is if a text is too hard and you don't feel you're going to be successful with it, you punt. And so I think it, it's something we all have to consider. One of the things that I try to do in my classroom is I try to have texts that we read together that everybody can read or can read with help. I have a lot of peer tutoring that goes on and, and kids who are more adept readers reading aloud to the kids who might be learning English as a second language. I also like to have different versions of text, which is becoming increasingly prevalent. When I do Romeo and Juliet, we use the Oxford University Press graphic novels. You know, one's in original Shakespearean English, one is in modern English, one's in simple English, and the kids choose what they want, and the visuals help them to read the text. So everybody gets in the game before we look at specific scenes. I just think it's the tenet of cognitive science, that we have to be offering kids text that they can be successful at and enjoy with our help. Because if they can't be successful or can't read it or aren't going to enjoy it with our help, then it's actually going to have a negative effect. That's another reason for free reading programs where you read whatever you want or whatever at your independent level. Uh, and then you bring that to the class as part of the common project. And perhaps you read something like that, that's part of the inquiry, and you bring it to the class. I think it's important that if something's hard, that, that there's a lot of assistance. And I think that I tend to read harder, more complex texts that are short, so that I can do the assistance, but it doesn't bog things down. When kids are reading longer texts, I'm hopeful that they're reading something that's at their independent reading level. And again, that's going to mean that for any particular inquiry unit, that I'll have kids reading different texts or different versions of the same text. And, and I think that's one of the great things about inquiry is it's so flexible. It can accommodate that kind of differentiation. You know, it just seems to me to be the height of insanity to be asking kids to read Romeo and Juliet or whatever text in the original if some of the kids, if it's, that's not at their independent or instructional level. And so I think we have to cast a wider net for ways to do that and, um, and for different kinds of texts that we can teach. And again, I just so love inquiry because kids can read a variety of texts 
at a variety of different levels, but they still have something to bring to the Common Inquiry Project. Dr. Wilhelm, this was so enlightening. I really appreciate you taking time to talk with us today. It was my very great pleasure. Thank you. Our next episode will continue this conversation. In part two, we'll hear from Dr. Smith and Christopher Butts, a secondary educator. We hope you'll tune in. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of PodClast. To be notified when future episodes are available, subscribe to PodClast on iTunes. Also, if you enjoyed today's episode, leave us a review. PodClast is sponsored by Reading Horizons, the creator of a data-driven literacy program for beginning readers, struggling readers, and English language learners of all ages. Visit readinghorizons.com trial for 14 days of free access to our software. Reading Horizons. Reading is for everyone.